Five-point plans and mission statements are all the rage now. Sunak's come up with the five points he wants to be judged by. And now we have Keir Starmer's five missions for future Labour government or indeed two Labour governments. These have become the stuff of modern politics. They're how our political world is to be boiled down to five items. And given there's a lot of cynicism about, and that's not surprising, so many prime ministers in such a short time, the scandals around Johnson, the disasters around Truss, it's not surprising that out there nobody really takes this stuff particularly seriously. But to give the politicians their credit, what they're trying to do is say, look, we mean it, and here's how we're going to bind ourselves to the mast, like Ulysses and the sirens. We're going to stick to things that can be measured, we can be judged, and presumably we will resign if we fail to achieve these objectives. Ho, ho, that's not going to happen. So let's take seriously Starmer's five missions, and in particular, two of them. One is to secure the highest sustained growth in the G7, making everybody better off everywhere in Britain. That's pretty bold. The second one is that we're going to have a clean energy superpower here in Britain. And that means that we're going to cut bills, increase security, and we're going to have zero carbon electricity by 230. No, not net zero, but zero carbon by 230. So the first one looks good, but requires the extraordinary powers of a British Prime Minister to not only determine the growth rate in the UK, but implicitly to control the growth rate in the six other members of the G7. How exactly is Starmer's mission going to be better than whoever happens to be the US president, the French president, the German chancellor, and so on, are going to achieve? It's a pretty demanding optimistic idea that somehow by getting into number 10, these magical powers are going to be passed to an incoming Labour government were it to win the election. So let's just stand back and take a look behind these two of the five headline missions. What does sustained growth in the G7 actually mean? Note, the word isn't sustainable, which would be at least meaningful in the sense that we can measure the environmental and other impacts from growth and adjust the GDP numbers accordingly. It's sustained. So if it turns out at the end of the Labour government that the number is lower in GDP terms than several other of the G7 countries, then, well, we can get out of jail because we just say, oh, yeah, yeah, but ours is going to be long term and it's going to continue into the future, whereas theirs isn't. You can see how the wriggle room has been created and it makes it difficult to judge. The upside is that, of course, Labour is rightly focusing on long term, on infrastructure and the long term features of the British economy, which have been so neglected for a long time. So a big tick for that. 
but don't kid yourself that this is measurable. And then come to what it would mean to actually create long-term, shall we use the word, stable growth. Well, first of all, there would have to be a, a huge amount of investment. So who's going to pay for that? Where's it going to come from? I mean, we all want investment. I'm sure the Conservatives want investment, the Lib Dems want investment, even the, the people on the far right would want investment. But it's got to be paid for. And the trouble for the Starmer government, if it's formed, is the same as the, the trouble for the Sunak government, which is that we don't save anything. So household savings are extremely low relative to any of the other G7. British companies don't reinvest their profits. There are no substantive retained earnings doing investment, which means that the corporate sector in the UK doesn't save. And of course, the government is a net disaver. And from all the fine words from Labour, I think it's reasonable to assume that it's quite a long time till we're going to see balanced budgets and paying down the debt in the UK under any political regime going forward. The fact is that all this investment that Labour have in mind is going to have to be paid for by, or at least financed by, the savings of foreigners. They're foregone consumption to pay for our investment because we're not prepared to save. There's no forced savings, higher taxes being promised by Labour to cream off a surplus to do the national revival in investment they have in mind. No, no. It's going to be foreigners that come forward with the money. They're going to queue up to invest in Britain. And why are they going to do that? Well, apparently, they're going to do it because of this successful framework of the economy in which energy is going to be cheaper. And of course, they're going to deal with the water bills, the transport bills, and the broadband bills as well. The fact is that British households are not able to pay for the existing services they're being provided, let alone all the premiums that are going to be put on their bills to pay for all this investment, which is going to be done fast track by an incoming Labour government. And unless you are prepared to address the fundamentals of the British economy, which is savings have to equal investment, we in the British economy have been living beyond our means for a very long time, and we have very low productivity. Unless you're prepared to deal with those and face up to the British public and say, you know what? You're going to have to live within your means. You're going to have to do what it takes to carry this investment forward, just as the British public did in the 1940s and early 1950s. Well, unless you're going to do that, where's your growth going to come from? Where's all this investment going to arise? And presumably, the Labour Party between now and the election, let's say at the end of 224 or beginning of 225, are going to answer that, those questions. When it comes to the 230 target for zero carbon electricity, I mean, where do you start? Does anyone really seriously believe that in the space of five or six years, an incoming government could not only utterly reform the planning system and get all that through parliament, but implement a radical reform of the planning system, implement a radical retake of the regulation, implement a radical change to the peer reviews that just been determined for the grid and for the distribution companies. 
provide for the development of really fast-track supply chains. You know, we're talking about a circumstance in which you might want to build tanks for the front line or spitfires for the Battle of Britain in very short order. I mean, it is incredibly short to build all of this kit in that period of time. And frankly, it's just not credible. You can talk lots and lots of hot air, but the idea that you're going to talk lots of zero carbon to meet this incredibly demanding target within the space of that period just isn't going to add up. And the investors are going to know that. And the problem comes when you commit to a target you're not actually capable of delivering as to how the investors work out what you're going to do when you fail to achieve that outcome. 235 for net zero electricity, which is the current ambition, is, to my mind, incredibly ambitious. 230 zero carbon from the electricity sector is just a world which you might achieve if you put the economy on the equivalent of a war footing and you were prepared to raise taxation to get a surplus to assist in that investment and you were prepared to guarantee all those customer bills to pay for all this stuff. You know, that's what you'd have to do. And my view is that that's hopeless as an ambition and it is not going to work. And that is amongst the five targets, the weakest of the lot or the five missions. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't get on with net zero, that we shouldn't sort out the planning, that we shouldn't sort out the regulation, that we shouldn't sort out our networks to deliver this outcome. But let's do it in a credible planned, dare I say, way with a feasible and practical set of targets which everyone can credibly believe in and a government can deliver. So when you actually drill into any of these missions, the good news is it forces a serious discussion about what determines the growth prospects of the British economy what is really necessary to do net zero. So tick and tick. And behind it lies a critique of why we have been failing so badly, both on the climate front, despite the territorial emissions, which of course exclude Drax's emissions alongside, excluding all that imported carbon, and why we have been doing so badly on the economic growth front. These things can be addressed, they should be addressed, but putting things on a five-year ticket with nice headline missions is not really the fundamentals of what needs to be done for a genuine British economic revival and rebuilding of our, in many respects, somewhat dilapidated infrastructures for the purposes of the 21st century. Of course, it would be wonderful if we achieved these outcomes, but politicians overreach, promise too much. Nobody believes they can deliver them. And the consequence of that is too often more cynicism and more questioning of the value of our democratic institutions. Time to get real, time to be realistic, time to have a serious, deep plan to address our economic performance and time to have a sensible framework which can actually credibly be delivered around net zero and climate change. And of course, natural capital as well. And that's the final point. When you have five missions, 
The obvious question is, what's been left out? And the answer, both on the Conservative side, in the Sunak pledges, and with Starmer, is almost all the interesting stuff is not summarised in five neat points. Thank you.